Thanks for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. I'm fortunate to have some sponsors supporting the show whose products I genuinely love and recommend. I'll start with a word on those so the rest of the episode will have no interruptions. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Levels. Levels uses continuous glucose monitoring to track your blood sugar in real time. It allows me to see the impact that everything I do has on my metabolic health so that I can optimize my diet and exercise accordingly. Wearing the Levels patch, I feel like I'm living in the future. There's this moment when you raise your phone to the back of your arm, it vibrates and shows your glucose level right on the screen. It's this instantaneous look inside yourself, an in-the-moment snapshot of what's going on inside your body. And while it's only showing one simple measurement for now, it's enough for me to see the future. And that's exciting. It's exciting because I believe that we can live meaningfully longer and healthier lives than we do today. And I believe technologies like Levels will help us to get there. Levels is currently running an exclusive beta program with a wait list of over 100,000 people. But you can skip the line and join Levels today by using my link in the show notes. Levels.link slash Jake. Again, that's levels.link slash Jake. This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you, Danielle, for joining me on the show today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while and uh, appreciate you taking the time. You are the uh, co-founder and general partner at 1517 Fund. And uh, before that, you're known for uh, for working at uh, the Teal Fellowship for a while, helping them do some of the amazing things that they did over the years. Uh, so looking forward to digging into what the magic was behind finding all these great founders and individuals. But uh, first and foremost, welcome to the show, and I would love to get started by hearing you tell your own story, uh, as usual, from as early as you're willing to start to uh, where you are today and, and how you made some of the decisions you made along the way. Sure, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, you know, the, the point that I think will be good to start with, um, and we'll go into some storytelling here, is actually just sort of my own educational journey. I was, gosh, I was 18 in 1998 and I was going to college and I didn't really know why. And I remember even questioning it a little bit. I got into the school that I wanted to go to, which is actually an all women's school called Simmons College in Boston. And when I got the acceptance, it made me think a little bit of like, wait, why am I even doing this at all? And I remember saying that out loud to my mother, like, huh, does this even make sense? And (laughs) she was, she was pretty right on it. I was uh, one of the first persons in my family to go to college. uh, And everyone in my family had me slated to probably go on to, you know, much more higher education than that. Um, So she basically said over my dead body, are you not going to go to undergrad Um, And also at the time, I didn't have a lot of ideas of what else I would do. Um, You know, when I was starting college, you know, laptops were becoming more accessible to the general public, Um, you know, but you still couldn't necessarily like, you know, build a startup on it or something like that. Um, So I don't think I was having any machinations of that there was a particular other thing that I would do, but just this light question in my head of like, hmm, I wonder if there's something else or something different. But that's kind of as far as that question went at the time. Um, And I ended up finishing school with a degree in psychology as well as performance music. And I was on my way to grad school. I had applied to a bunch of different places and I was going to go to school 
potentially for neuropsychology, which is part of what I studied in undergrad. And I had uh, an internship for a couple of years at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in uh, in Boston, which is a very prestigious place to be. I think, I don't even know what's going on to date, but at the time I was the youngest intern they had ever had. And I kind of just made this opportunity happen for myself where I walked in the door and said, hey, I think what you all are doing here is really interesting. Is there an opportunity for me to shadow people who work here? And um, it was the first time anyone had done that. Uh, and, and they brought me on board. So I thought that's where my career was gonna go. And I had applied to grad school and I remember when I got into grad school, I had the same question of like, huh, am I going to spend all this time in school? Um, you know, when I instead I could potentially be out in the working world. And it was a big decision because when I thought about it, most of the people I knew who had gone on to grad school weren't finishing until they were in their late 20s or early 30s. And so it was like this really big question of like, am I really going to triple down on this particular commitment? Um, and one of the things that came to me was kind of like this early quarter life crisis where I said, gosh, um, you know, the thing I've always wanted to do is actually to teach. But everyone growing up told me those who can't teach, you know, the pay is terrible. There's no respect. Like basically everyone was sort of veering me off on this other path. And when I would tell people I was going towards something like neuropsych, they'd be really excited. Even my friend groups, it, it sort of meant something. It was like, oh, you must be smart if you're studying this particular area. And I actually struggled in school quite a bit, um, you know, in elementary and middle school. And so getting that kind of kudos from people was very gratifying. And I think it, it made me not listen to myself at a certain point and listen to what other people thought was interesting or cool. And I noticed that I was kind of going to grad school because other people thought that I should go, not because I had this burning desire. And, th and that's kind of what happened to me is I, I woke up one morning and figured out, wow, I do not have this burning desire to go to grad school. So why would I do this? Um, and I, I looked back through my past and thought, gosh, I've always really loved teaching, but I don't want to be like a traditional teacher. I don't want to... Um, I don't want to be in like a typical classroom and, you know, go through half two subjects and whatnot. But what I thought about was, you know, what I could do is be a private tutor, because in that realm, I can be working with students all the time in different things. Every day is kind of different. I don't have to think about classroom management. Um, so I started a tutoring company instead of going to grad school and started working on it. And I, I fell into this interesting sphere of people who were homeschoolers and unschoolers. Um, back when I was starting this company, it was before Craigslist was totally creepy and I had ads on Craigslist for tutoring. And I had a couple homeschool families reach out to me, which was really great because the majority of my families had been um, public and private school kids, uh, which also meant that most of my work all started after like two or three in the afternoon. And, you know, I, I wanted things to do earlier in the day as well. Uh, and, and also one thing about public and private school students was that I kind of felt like I was putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound because I was basically going over to people's house to do homework help and try to catch people up. But, you know, when someone is three grades behind on something and you're trying to catch them up while maintaining the work they're doing, it's very difficult. And then I remember the first time I went over a homeschooler's house, it was a totally different experience. The children were so excited for me to get there. Um, they would ask if I could stay for multiple hours can I do math and science and reading? Like they were just sort of like oozing with enthusiasm. And the students I was working with who were in public and private school, they enjoyed that I came over to help them, but they didn't like what we had to do because we kind of had to do all the have to stuff of school. Um, and, and they appreciated that I would try to do it in a way that would work for them and make it more fun. But it was just very different when you go over someone's house who is abundantly overjoyed to see you and is enthusiastic about learning. And I found that this extended to many homeschooling families that I worked with. And I ended up working with homeschool co-op. Um, that was a group of secular homeschoolers in San Diego. And I loved working with that group. And that group uh, actually really um, influenced my own way of thinking about what it means to be an educated person and a learner. And the woman who started that group came to me one day and said, hey, you know, I've been thinking about starting a charter school. Would you do it with me? And, you know, we didn't have startup vernacular at the time. 
Um, but what she was basically saying is, hey, I want to scale what we're doing in this co-op. You know, would you do it with me? And at first I thought she was crazy. I was like, you're nuts. Like, we hate school. Why would we want to start one? Um, but one thing was true is that we kept seeing parents uh, come to our group and say, hey, I don't have time to do this, you know, but I, I would love to work with a homeschool co-op or something like that. And so that's where we got the idea. Um, I will fast forward some of the story here, but my, my co-founder and I, Christine Kuglin, we started Innovations Academy, which is a public charter school in San Diego. Um, we opened in 2008, but we took two years to found the school starting in 2006, um, which is nowadays considered relatively fast. I remember we just couldn't wait for it to start. And we had this whole philosophy about learning by doing and really non-coercion and respecting where students and their families are at with something. Um, so instead of coming in with our own preconceived notions about what someone should be able to do or how much they should be able to accomplish in a given uh, school year, really looking at each independent learner. Um, being a school principal, because myself and my co-founder shared that responsibility, um, was a lot of work. I always say I would not wish school principalship on my worst enemy. And in fact, my, one of my best friends, Christine Kuglin, that co-founder, is still uh, the director of that charter school. And I am on the board and will probably be on the board forever. But it's been one of the most amazing things that I've done. Uh, and also the most challenging. And we went through all the sort of startup up, up and downs that you can think of in terms of getting funding, losing funding, hiring staff, firing staff. Um, you know, we were responsible for actual children. We opened our doors to something like 160 students our first year. The school supports about 400 students now. Um, so you feel really responsible when you have, you know, young people in front of you, um, you know, and you're promising to to do a good job and better than what other schools are gonna be doing in the area. Um, but it was a really, really amazing time and really grounded me in a lot of educational philosophy, which is actually directly linked to what I'm doing now with 1517. So after starting the school, uh, I ended up moving up to the Bay Area. I had a boyfriend in the area and we were doing that flying back and forth thing. The school was in San Diego. Uh, and it was time to figure out who would go where. And there was sort of a great migration of friends from SoCal to NorCal. And I said, okay, I'll go North. Um, I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I would do. I remember searching on Craigslist for places that I could live that, you know, I could sort of eke out some of my savings, but not spend a ton. Uh, and I remember at the time thinking that 800 bucks for the room I had was crazy expensive, even though it was the cheapest thing I could find. Um, but nowadays I look at that and I'm like, wow, I really had a sweet deal in Mountain Review. That was pretty good. Um, but I, I came to the Bay with no plan. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know how to code. I don't have like direct access in science and tech. So I really didn't know what I would be doing here. So it's sometimes I look back on when I came here 11 years ago and think, wow, I could never imagine the position that I'm in now, but through a, through a matter of events, um, I got a call from this woman, Lindy Fishburne, who worked at the Teal Foundation. And her words were to me were, hey, the foundation has lost their mind. They're starting this new program, the, the Teal Fellowship, to award young people who are 19 and under $100,000 over two years to work on a science or tech project. They need someone to come run the program. I think you'd be really perfect for this. And I was like, wow, how fortuitous. Like, this is perfect for me. Like, there's a lot of my sort of homeschooling philosophy and um, non-coercive um, sort of pedagogy that would fit right into this program. So I immediately jumped on board. I did some interviews over there uh, and myself and my colleagues started building uh, the, the, Teal, the Teal Fellowship. And we had such an amazing time working with those young people and learning so much and creating the program with them and seeing after five years, the successes that people had like Vitalik Buterin, Dylan Field of Figma, Laura Deming of the Longevity Fund, Ritesh Agarwal of Oyo Rooms, that we said, hey, we think we could scale what we're doing here at the foundation by starting a venture fund, 1517, and take our work to the next level. So myself and Michael Gibson from the foundation, we started 1517 six years ago to really further that mission um, of being able to show that one path is not for all. And it's it's been really extraordinary. I love working on the venture side. We make very early stage investments. 
uh, sometimes just, you know, mentoring people and working with them over time, sometimes a 50K check, sometimes a grant check. We actually have a 1K grant program we run. Uh, and then we write pre-seed checks as well. And, and that thesis is still true for us. Of We work predominantly with people who do not have a college degree. I'd say 85 to 90% of our founders fit that thesis. And what we're thinking about, you know, more recently is we've gone from being a fund where you have a single fund to a firm where you have multiple investment vehicles to really thinking about what does it mean for 1517 to be an institution? And, you know, identity is something that is really interesting to me. And I don't think of ourselves as um, necessarily like we are investors and we do venture work, but it's not who we are. It's, it's the mechanism for how we do the work we do. And so what we've come to with where we want to go as an institution is that we're um, an anti-establishment educational institution that happens to do its work by funding people. And so that's what we're kind of looking to set a foundation for actually coming up in 2022 and beyond. Um, so that is like, that's like the long, that's probably the short long version of, uh, of the background, but I thought I would start all the way back at that sort of inkling of, Hmm, you know, maybe there's something different, out there and it doesn't have to just look like going to four years of school. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an awesome story. And I definitely appreciate the, uh, the short, long version. Maybe next time we can do the long, long version. Oh, man. <laughs> what other stories come out in that one? But, uh, but yeah, it's great. And, and it's interesting, the, uh, the common threads throughout, obviously. A mm -hmm. um, couple directions I want to sort of take this. Um, but first, I want to start something you said kind of early on in the story, the difference when you were tutoring between homeschool mm. students yeah. and uh, kids who are in public and private school. Yeah. Homeschooling, I know there's a few companies that are sort of working on making this, you know, better or more e easier for parents to handle, I guess, through technology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I had the founder of Primer on as one of my first episodes. Okay. They're doing some work there. Um, but it seems to me that homeschooling, especially with um, increased costs in private education, uh, COVID, and the fact that a lot of parents sort of got a first taste of what it's like to do homeschooling in some sure. fashion by force. Uh, yep. It seems like a, a trend that should only continue to sort of increase in, in how many people are doing it. And yep. for me personally, it's just very interesting. I've heard a lot of these stories and seen a lot of success stories from individuals who were homeschooled. So I'm curious if you could sort of like dig into what, what you think was at the root of the fact that like these, these homeschooled kids just seem so much more enthusiastic about learning. And did that translate to just generally better life for these kids, do you think, or um, what's your sort of assessment of, of homeschooling versus more traditional? You know, one thing that I found really interesting with the homeschooling families I work with was that there were a lot that were so flexible in how they thought about things. So there were families I would have where there would be five kids in the family and maybe three kids in the family were homeschooled. And then maybe two at some point had said, hey, I really want to go to school. And then the parents had found either the private or public school that those kids wanted to go to. And I really admired those families a lot because what they were doing was thinking. They were making a conscious decision for each family member and, and that child being considered in that and respected um, for what their needs were and what their choices and wants and desires were as well. And so with a lot of families, even for families who are, you know, you might say, oh, like this kid goes to school or whatever, but if there's a that conscious discussion going on at home of, hey, is this the best fit? Is, you know, is this a great place for you to be? Um, I consider those families in almost that homeschooling bucket as well, because they're not just saying, oh, yeah, you go to the school that's down the street or, hey, you know, our family for generations has gone to the same private school. So that's where you're going to go sort of thing. Um, and, and so one of the things that I think is an undercurrent in a lot of homeschooling and not all homeschooling, but is this idea of that the child is respected as a human being who maybe can't make full decisions on their own necessarily, maybe they need some guidance and support, but that the parent is really more like a facilitator, um, you know, than a uh, authoritarian who says, no, you have to do X, you have to do Y. And I've seen that a lot uh, in these families that, you know, I would just say are like conscious educators where they're making those decisions together as a family for is homeschooling the right thing? Is private school the right thing? Is, is public school the right thing for each independent um, child. And the other thing that I see with homeschoolers in particular is that 
you get a lot of things where each person in the family is, is considered a learner. So you might have one child who really goes down a deep rabbit hole of history, let's say, and then that person becomes sort of, you know, the one in the family who people go to to talk about that subject or in these homeschooling co-ops that I was part of you know, sometimes those children would become like the authority figures on something uh, on a particular topic. And so there was just this idea that it didn't have to do with your your age or particular standing. It was like that you could sort of prove um, just on your own, like what you knew, which is kind of interesting. I've actually something that's sort of like two, <laughs> two brain cells are coming together right now for me about, we say the same thing with our founders of like, we're not looking for a signal. We're not looking for that you went to Harvard or that you went to a particular private school um, or that YC has knighted you or whatever. What we're looking for is that, you know, you're just showing us like sort of the raw horsepower of what you know about something. And I felt like this was also true for the young people that I worked with when I was tutoring. And I, and I think that agency is really important. And being someone who is, <laughs> excuse me, agency young, um, I do think that it leads to a potentially more productive adulthood. Right. So that, that's interesting. You, you drew the parallel from like these homeschooled kids to the founders that you're working with now. Uh, and I was curious how you thought initially when, when the Teal Foundation reached out to you about running this fellowship program, how you thought that experience might translate or, or how they even identified that that experience would yeah. translate and then how it did yep. in practice. Yeah. Um, and then maybe from there, we can go a little bit deeper onto sort of what you did there and uh, sure. trying to parse out sort of the uh, how you were able to identify these amazing individuals, some of whom you named earlier. Sure. No, absolutely. You know, I, I think for me, it was very apparent when the foundation reached out that the homeschooling philosophy and non-coercive um, pedagogy was going to be a perfect fit for what they were going to do. And, and I think... Um, you know, people over there knew as well. I worked with Jim O'Neill, who was on the board of the foundation, and, and he homeschooled his children um, mostly for their early years in elementary school and maybe some middle school as well. And so there was definitely an alignment on that. And then it did filter into the program as well. You know, one, we didn't say it like this when we were at the foundation, but we've just been sort of coming to these particular inklings lately with 1517, and they do play all the way back into the foundation, which is that we don't believe in playbooks. Um, you know, we, we really believe that each person is an individual and they're going to have different needs. And so we set up structures with what we do. And we both did this at the foundation and we're, do, we do it with 1517 as well, where there are structures to support people, but it's, um, I don't know quite how to say it. It's like, for example, with Teal Fellows, they would have reviews with the foundation and with a mentor and often with other Teal Fellows in the room as well. But there wasn't anything prescriptive. It wasn't like, oh, your fellowship should look like this, or hey, you know, you're you're a seed stage company, so you should definitely raise X amount of money. Um, I see a lot of playbook stuff coming out of accelerators, and I don't think it serves founders very well. I think that it's efficient, um, but efficiency isn't always effective. And it's something that we think about a lot in terms of each Teal Fellow we worked with. It was like just an older young person's homeschooling program where each of them was getting different support that they needed, but giving them all the support in the same way wasn't going to make sense. It's like when we had, you know, a, a negotiation workshop, we wouldn't insist that every single Teal Fellow come. We would say, hey, if this is, you know, if this is um, a resource that is useful to you, then, then come and enjoy this. Like I always described it like a buffet table of we're going to put lots and lots of stuff on the buffet table, but I'm not going to force feed you to eat. Um, and it was hard because the teacher in me, you know, I, I feel this FOMO about learning of like, oh, I can't believe this one person didn't come to this workshop because I know that they could like extract a lot of good information from this, but you know, they're not here. They prioritize something else. And what we learned was that people want information when the house is just barely on fire. So I remember talking to certain teal fellows and being like, wait, why on earth wouldn't you come to the negotiation workshop? You're negotiating all the time, like in your life, in what you want to build. 
Um, it's just like a great human skill to have. And they'd be like, well, I just didn't feel like I really needed it right now. So that, that relevancy piece wasn't there for them. Um, and so we'd present a lot of different material so that when something was relevant, we had it right there sort of on tap. And I feel like that's true also for 15, 17. We're not going to say to every pre-seed founder, hey, here's what being a pre-seed founder looks like exactly. Because, you know, in some cases we have a B2B SaaS company. In some cases we have a biotech company. And it would just be ridiculous to literally hand them, you know, essentially a worksheet and say all of you are the same. Um, so that was something that was very much baked into the Teal Foundation. And, and I think there's, you know, there's a piece of criticism that often gets tossed around that, you know, there was no program or no structure. And that was just absolutely not true. It's just that we didn't make it look like force feeding things to children because we didn't treat them like children. We, we treated them like capable human beings. Yeah. And I, I mean, at a certain point, uh, you know, people can critique a lack of system or a lack of structure, but uh, the the proof is kind of in the pudding on that one. A lot of just a, a really an amazing group of individuals. Like you compare it to Y Combinator and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's like basically several hundred companies that YC has funded uh, over the last decade and a half or so versus I think at the Teal Fellowship, yeah. you guys were taking like 20 or 25 yes, people we were a year. Taking, yeah, we were taking 20 people under 20 years old. So they had to be 19 or under. And within that first batch of Teal Fellows, I believe, I think the stat is probably even better, but on my last count, which is probably a couple of years ago, even one out of 20 Teal Fellows created an opportunity that was worth over a billion dollars. Um, yeah, so that just... is an absolutely mind-blowing statistic. Um, and, and, you know, I know there was a Teal Fellows company that went public recently from a later batch. And it's like, man, this is this is pretty incredible to see, um, you know, what what young people can do. And, and I think part of like our whole message is just that, you know, we always said at the foundation, some ideas just can't wait. And that's what it's about. It's not just about the cost of college. It's about the opportunity cost. And it's also about the opportunity cost of other people infantilizing people when they're in some of their most prime working years. Right. So I guess the next question I have is like you, I think, let me know if this is sort of unfair, but I would just like roughly split what goes into making these successes as sort of uh, on the one hand, like identification of the individuals yep. and on the, on yep. the second hand development yep. um, or incubation, I guess you could call yep. it like something like yep. that. Um, and we, we spoke a bit to the development piece, like, pretty unstructured yeah. buffet style, take what you want, whatever's helpful, not going to force feed you makes sense. And it's like generally what I've heard from the few TL fellows that I've had on the show yeah. or, or talked to otherwise. Um, and so I think there's definitely something to be said for that, that like flexible, somewhat autonomous, yeah. high freedom, high encouragement, pursue your passion, homeschooling type of approach. Uh, and if there's anything else on that side, would love to to hear about it, but sure. um, I, I guess I'll, I'll start there. Is there anything else key on sort of the development side before we move over to the identification piece? You know, one thing that I think might fit on the development side is this idea of belief. Um, one thing that we found to be very powerful over time is just being granted permission. And we saw this as a huge thing, especially at our finalist rounds, where we would have these people come in and they'd say, wow, thank you for inviting me to this. Like, like you see me, you see what I'm doing. Um, and it was, it was interesting within the foundation program as well, because what we had were a lot of people who, when they would get the Teal Fellowship, they would have like this early 20s life crisis where they were like, wow, holy mackerel. Like I just got this amazing grant and this huge opportunity. And now I think the thing I applied with isn't even like the thing I fully want to work on because now I have the opportunity and like having the opportunity is different than dreaming about it. And I think there's something in that development piece about having a supportive community that like points and says like, yeah, we believe that you have the potential to do something greater than, you know, than even, you know, yourself possible. Um, to do. And we just see this, we see this all the time, especially with 1517. Now people come back to us six or seven years later, Hey, you gave me a grant when I was in high school, you believed in me first. And that helped me to figure out that, you know, I did want to go to grad school later, um, you know, in this particular topic. And this happened the other day, I had a, a coffee with a young man who came to one of our events and he said, 
you know, that event really opened my eyes to technology and progress. And, you know, now I'm at Cal getting my PhD in AI and ML, and I just can't thank you enough. And I was like, I didn't even know we did that. Like, I had no idea that we had made any difference in this person's life. And it was only because they tweeted out at me over Twitter, like, hey, yeah, I love that event I came to when I was 14 years old, and I'd love to catch up and tell you where I'm at now. And I was, I was blown away. Yeah, I think another way to say it, I mean, the, the way that you said it is great. Like the belief, I think, is is definitely one word for it. Another way that I think about it, if you didn't say explicitly, is just sort of like recognition. Totally. Um, I yeah. think a, a lot yeah. of people, I think that's like a pretty, both having people believe in you and having some recognition from others, they're sort of synonymous, but yep. maybe a little bit, um, you know, they're both helpful in their own ways and, and definitely come one in the same. Totally. Um, but I think that, a lot of people are sort of growing up like you know you ask people you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up and they want to be like astronauts and professional athletes and all the rest right famous actors whatever it might be and then you sort of get far enough through the education system and you get ranked according you know along with your peers and you're not the smartest one in your class and like you sort of stop believing in yourself probably Absolutely. Uh, and, and especially like, you know, you join the workforce, there's just more and more placing you in competition and saying that you're not the best at this sort of generic game where like, yeah. if you're, if you excel in one particular thing, you're not mm -hmm. going to be the best at like the average of all of them or whatever. Right. Um, and so getting recognized by like, you know, by Teal, uh, or his foundation and the fellowship at, you know, 20, when I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people sort of hang on to that high hope and belief in themselves through high school, through college. Um, not everyone, but like, certainly it hasn't been beaten out of everyone yet. And so to be recognized at that stage of your life, I think something like that, especially when you're getting funded, like a hundred thousand dollars, um, it can give you like another 10 or 20 years of runway to believe in yourself potentially. And, uh, yeah. it's, it's great that you brought that up. Cause I think that must've been a pretty powerful factor for a lot of people. Yeah, I think I think I think you're absolutely right on. I, I even wrote down the word recognition because I think it's a great word to use. Yeah, uh, well, I appreciate that. That's just uh, sort of I tried to hold the mirror to what you said and, yeah, and no, add to it a little bit. But I think yeah, uh, it's it's an important thing that I definitely wouldn't have thought of yeah. uh, had you not yeah. mentioned it. So jumping to the other side, which I yeah. think may or may not be as or more important yep. um, is the identification, because just the sheer numbers of it, like you put together the best program in the world, even um, you put 20 people in who are sort of of average or even 75th percentile or even like 90th percentile capability, even 99th, probably you're not going to get any billion dollar companies out of that. Right. Uh, you have to plug in super exceptional people in terms of what they're capable of and what the max of their potential is to get these absurd outcomes that, that the Teal Fellowships realized. So Yep. Um, I'm curious, like there's, again, there's a few different pieces of this funnel and like, I took a few notes beforehand, but I think it's sort of recruiting cause you need to like solicit the applications in the first yep. place, then yep. the design of the applications themselves, the evaluation of those applications that are submitted and then sort of like the final interviewing and decision-making yep. process. So if you could walk through that or if, or if there's different yep. stages, um, no, I'd love to hear how that worked. Absolutely. And yeah, you're right. Identification is really important. Um, and outreach is really, really important. And yeah, there's like many thoughts spinning through my head, but I'm going to attempt to tell a linear thing about sort of start to finish and I'll add some commentary as we go. Um, but you know, one of the important parts was we really had to put out like, we called it a bat signal for the Teal Fellowship because this idea in 2010 of, hey, there might be some young people out there that, that don't want to be sitting in a classroom who are 19 and under um, and might want to join this wacky program and get a grant, work on something for two years. It was completely radical. Um, you know, it was sacrilegious to talk about it. And so we, you know, we had to go out on foot on campuses and meet people, um, where they were at. And that was a big part of our outreach and still remains a big part of our, our outreach is we really, really believe that there is amazing talent out there but you have to go to places and you have to turn over stones because the type of person, you know, like someone like a, like a Vitalik type, he's probably not like watching 
main, you know, and consider again that this is like 10 years ago, like, may, you know, I wouldn't have considered social media necessarily like a news outlet at, like it is now. Um, but 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought like, oh yeah, Vitalik's going to hear something about us, you know, on a program on TV and then he's going to apply. It's like, that's not how this is going to work. We're going to have to go out and scout people. And so we spent a lot of time on different campuses. Um, we took lots of different, especially the first year we just, we just went, yeah, we just went to lots of campuses and talked to people about the program. Um, Peter himself did some of that outreach as well, which is really great, especially that first year. After that first year, we also got a lot of sort of referrals of like, hey, like if you were looking for someone like you, where would you go look? Where would you turn over stones? And so they'd give us recommendations to their high schools or other programs they were part of. First Robotics was mentioned a lot. Um, so a lot of it was just boots on the ground, like getting out there and working with people. Um, once people were inside of the applicant pool, we did, we would always do a first screening and it doesn't work like this anymore. So I'll just speak to how it used to work. <coughs> Excuse me. We, um, we would get applicants in, they would apply. Um, we would do a first skim always by humans, um, to look at applications and any application that you could tell the person had put some amount of effort into and wasn't just like, oh, I'm throwing my hat in the ring for some free money. <coughs> we would go on to a mentor stage where we had a pool of mentors who would review all those applications and write specific feedback on, hey, here's what I think you should do to push this forward. Um, we would actually give that feedback to these applicants. And what was super interesting about that was later on, we asked this question about, you know, what does the next 10 years look like? What does the next two years look like? And what does the next two months look like? And because the application cycle was four months long, we could go back to people and ask them about sort of, hey, how'd those two months go? And it wasn't a gotcha like, oh, did you do the thing you said you do? It's more like, what did you learn during this time? Because, you know, with all good intent, you can set what you think is going to be a goal and then find out it's much harder to achieve. And so it was very interesting to see who was kind of good at goal and level setting, who would take some of the mentor feedback we would give and use it. That was sort of coachability we were looking for. Um, and then eventually we would do a phone screen for around, I think the top like 80 people or so. And what we're trying to get to is a top 40 uh, to bring out to our finalist round. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything in particular. I mean, I think there's something about at that screening, it, it was often sort of just a like a phone interview that we were doing. And a lot of what we were looking for is really like enthusiasm of, hey, this person's like working on this idea. They're very excited about the space. Um, you know, we could see them using this time and this money effectively. And then we flew people out to our finalist round, which was top 40. And those finalist events were very interesting. Um, I remember I was always sort of concerned about, oh gosh, like, I don't want this to be science fair. I don't want this to be hyper competitive. I want this to be the place where young people come and say like, wow, like I'm loving who I'm meeting here kind of thing. And we were very lucky in that, that very first finalist round, we had this one young man who had shown up to the hotel pretty early and he decided he, like all on his own, he was going to make himself welcome wagon. And so he sat in the lobby and would greet every young person who he saw walk into the lobby and be like, hey, his name is Brahm. He'd be like, hey, I'm Brahm. Nice to meet you. We should all grab dinner tonight and we should do this and do that. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. Like he's totally diffusing the science fair, who's going to win the competition energy that could naturally come up. And so I, I still know Brahm. And I'm thankful to him to this day for what he did um, because it was amazing to get these young people together because what they would say at the event was, wow, I've never met other young people like me. And I remember digging into that a bit because I was, I was confused. I was like, okay, but aren't you meeting other young people on your campus, you know, who are kind of like you, like smart, interesting people. And they were like, no, you don't understand. It's not about that. Like there's plenty of smart people on campus, but there aren't people who are doing something outside of school just because like there aren't people geeking out about something because they just love it. Um, it's because it's going to get them a grade or 
be used for their resume or to get them that, you know, primo internship or whatever. And people just look at you if you have six heads, if you say you're like trying to start a project or a startup. <coughs> and I thought that was super, super, super interesting. And actually it was that feedback that made us go and say, we bet this sort of ethos extends down the applicant pool. So we started doing something called our teal summits where we would invite a couple hundred young people to really meet other people like them. And those were incredibly impactful events, but right now we're talking about identification. So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but at that finalist round, you know, it was interesting, especially that first year, because we didn't really know what we were looking for. I remember reading Tom Courier's application um, from the first batch of fellows. And I had read 150 applications. I felt like my eyeballs were bleeding out of my face um, just because I had read so many things. And I hadn't quite hit on anybody yet that I was like, this is the type of person we're looking for. But there was something in his application that was really infectious. We had people send in written and videos. And he like told these stories about when he was in elementary school and he decided he tried to like build a house out of bamboo in his backyard. And he was always the kid who was like trying to sell things in the classroom when the teacher wasn't looking and stuff like that. And he was working on um, a solar technology, um, mostly in robotics. And he was just really interesting. And I remember when I read his application, I was like, oh my God, this is the type of person we've been looking for. It took me 150 application reads to find this type of person. But I think there's some, there, there were like things that were standing out that made him seem like a couple standard deviations above what the rest of the applicant pool was looking like. And so then we kind of were using certain appl applications as like a baseline of like, okay, these seem like the types of people we're, we're interested in. Or like Laura Deming had this deep, deep, insatiable um, passion for longevity and not just passion for it, but she had been like interning in people's labs since the time she was a young teenager. And she was like really invested in the space. And it was another one of these examples of like, okay, this is one of those like couple standard deviations out people. Um, it actually wasn't until a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that our team on the 1517 side, we said, we think we now, after 11 years, have enough data to like really come up with what we would call some of these qualities. Um, and it's taken us a long time to figure it out because it's hard to articulate it. I always tell people like, you know, the people we work with are very, very curious people. But when you say that, everyone thinks of the curious person they know. They don't think of two standard deviations out on curious. And so it's like, I have cousins who are 20 years younger than me and they're great and they're smart and they're very curious, but they're not, they're not what we're talking about. Like there's something ca like literally categorically different. Um, so one of these traits, I'll just name off one for now. Uh, that we look for something we call hyperfluency. And it's this ability to talk backwards and forwards about a space ad nauseum and be able to scaffold that communication up and down where you can talk to an expert in your space, but you can also talk to your grandma about it. And the reason this is super important to us is because if you're building a team and other people, you need to be able to talk at different levels for things and, and very articulately. Um, and the skill set of people who can do both of those things is pretty small. There's a lot of people who can talk super high level and there's a lot of people who can, you know, use like, I don't know, regular nomenclature, but the, the people who are super savvy in an area and, you know, can talk to you about it. Like it was written out of a children's book is very, very thin. Um, so that's one of those traits, but that identification piece that, that you're mentioning is huge. And it's something that we tweaked over time. I remember in the first year of the Teal Fellowship, we were very much sort of emulating college a little bit too much. We used to ask for SATs and SAT twos. And I think it was after the second group of Teal Fellows, we uh, let go of that section um, and, you know, started looking more at like, what is this person doing? Um, because we found that even people who were science fair winners and people who had great SATs, when you put them out in the wild and said, hey, you can do whatever you want for two years, they were like, cool, but how do I get my A? And we were like, you don't get an A. There's no classroom here. Like you're now in a totally different environment. They did not do as well 
as the people who really understood, oh, I'm driving my own destiny now and I have the opportunity to make and build something. Yeah, what am I gonna do with that time? Yeah, that's uh, that's an awesome overview. And uh, especially at the end, like, I, I like the beginning, you talked about like putting out the bat signal, boots on the ground. Uh, I thought it was particularly interesting to ask the people where they would find others yeah. like themselves. That's yep. sort of a way to, uh, yep. to track them down. Um, and then, you know, skimming from however many applications came in to 80 phone calls and ultimately 40 in person for the final round. It's impressive for me to hear that you guys, well, how many applications did you start off with? I guess the first year was the first year was 400 applicants. Yeah. So skimming from 400 to 80, yep. that's like 80% cut yep. without even talking to the people. And I think that's just like pretty impressive. I, I often wonder if you have to talk to people to sort of make that evaluation, but it sounds like at a high level, no, um, you know, you never know who is maybe left in the, uh, in the 80% bucket that didn't get the call, but still, it seems like that was sufficient to, to cut the first 80% and then another 80 to 40 with the phone call, uh, makes sense. And it's not, you know, 50% cut off a phone call seems very reasonable. Yeah. And then the 40 in person, so it's an yep. interesting filtering for sure. And then towards the end, the fact that you guys didn't really know what exactly you were looking for maybe and were able to figure it out just by pattern matching the types of people who just evidently stood out. Yep. Um, you guys weren't looking to like match to some criteria. You just sort of recognized. It was also like, we have to see what's in this pool of people. We were very open to maybe nobody in this pool of people is where we should be going. And like, if we need to like delay the onset of the program, we would do that. And so we were very open about like, we'll see what happens. But I do remember that first finalist round, I'll never forget because we were getting to meet these people in the flesh. And I always say that people are 3D and materials are 2D. So like reading what someone wrote on an application versus meeting them in person was like transformational for everybody. It was huge. Um, and, and I've, you know, this, I've always been very curious about the experiment of like, yes, we always picked who we thought would thrive most in the program as the sort of top 20. Um, but there's a, there's like a mischievous part of me that always wonders if we had just done a random assortment of, you know, those 40 and said, okay, we're going to, you know, throw a die and, and pick the 20 based off that, that <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think we could have had some very interesting results from, from that uh, experiment. Yeah. I mean, that's at that point, that's already the top 10%. And at that point, I think it's your, your splitting hairs probably. So makes sense. Um, yep. I'm, I'm going to ask you another question that I'm not sure whether or not you'll want to answer. So I'll give you a backup <laughs> in case you don't. Uh, but <laughs> you, you talked about the term hyperfluency, which I thought was super interesting. I've never heard that term before. I don't know if you invented yeah, it, we but... made it. We made it up. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Awesome term and word and, uh, what it describes. Uh, I think it's just, you know, people who uh, I've always found that the smartest people can describe the things that they're experts in extremely simply. And that's often what I ask people on the podcast who are experts in their given field to do. Yeah. Um, yep. and it's just super impressive when they can do that. And sometimes people can't, they just live in that, like really, really deep in the weeds area and right. sort of can't come out for air. Uh, and not to say that they're not, you know, I, I haven't like identified that term or anything. I never thought, oh, these people may be. Well, we, we have a term for those people. <laughs> What's that? What we call that is the cloud of abstractions. They're people uh, who are really smart and they sound really smart. But when you ask them a very pointed, like, hey, this question is an answerable question, they tend to answer in really big abstractions. And what we've seen with those folks is that it is often a way of trying to hide that not a whole lot is going on. It's like, okay, you sound really smart, but when I ask you, where does the rubber meet the road? And, you know, like one of our favorites is we always ask people about their 10 year vision, but I always ask people, what are you doing on Friday? And when they can't answer for me, like, here's what I'm doing on Friday, something is wrong. <laughs> like, and it's not that something's wrong with them, but it's that something is not equating to this person is is going to be a pattern match for the type of person who is going to maybe work well with us. So like maybe they'll be a successful entrepreneur. Maybe other things will happen. You know, our job is to miss a lot of the time. Um, but in our opinion, you have to be able to do both. Like 
know what you're doing on Friday and have that 10 year vision. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, the guy in, in the bar from the movie Goodwill Hunting. Yes. He's quoting the textbook. And yes. I think Goodwill yeah. Hunting would have got into the program, but uh, totally. maybe that guy, not so much. Yes, that's exactly right. You got it. So the question I, I want to ask that you may or may not answer. Uh, and then the, the second question, which we'll get to either way, but you decide if you want to skip there. Uh, the one you might want to skip is I'd love to hear as many terms and descriptions of those terms as you have sort of uh, labeled. And it sounds like you just got to doing this like a couple of weeks ago, which is, I know it's like 10 years of learning maybe, but if you're willing to share it, would love to hear it. And then second, um, would love to talk about 1517 and how you've translated a lot of what you learned at Teal to uh, what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have these terms in front of me because I haven't like committed them to memory yet. Cause it's like, oh yeah, we're, we're just, we're still figuring this out. We're only 11 years old. We're figuring this out. Um, one of them is we look for people um, who have this characteristic that we call um, edge work. Uh, the idea is that it's people who are somewhat comfortable being uncomfortable. So there's a there's a um, there's an example of this where if you're riding a motorcycle into a tight turn, you have to lean pretty far over to go into it. If you don't lean over far enough, you skid. Um, and if you lean too far, you also like fall. Like, mm. so it's, it's this really interesting edge where you have to be over uh, to a point that feels uncomfortable, but if you don't go there, you're going to mess up. And like, you know, on a motorcycle, if you mess up, sometimes you mess up big. Um, so it's this idea of people who can kind of lean in to an edge on something and be uncomfortable. Um, but you know, ideally not to the point of destruction, um, so that's one that is important to us. Um, we have one we call Friday night Dyson sphere. These are the people who love to geek out, you know, maybe in the past, these would have been the people who like hung out on land parties on a Friday night. Um, you know, these folks want to stay up over the weekend and are like eating, drinking and sleeping like really big, ridiculous ideas. Um, so we love those folks. Uh, I'll go over maybe just two more of them. <coughs> One is what we call the Zen arrow. It's this idea of egoless ambition where people have a target that they are going for, but it's about hitting the target, not about them being the arrow. Um, so, you know, I always say with 1517, we have a no asshole policy. Um, and I think this kind of hits at it a lot. It's mission-driven people who can kind of get out of their own way, um, but at the same time, again, be focused on this target. And then the last one we call acorn to oak, um, which is kind of the, the um, what are you doing on Friday question of like, okay, you've got this vision, you're going to become like this oak tree or your company is going to become this big thing. But again, you have to start somewhere with this acorn. And that's that Friday question of like, well, what do you, you know, what, you know, I love gardening. So it's like, you know, what are you planting on Friday to get to where you want to be as an oak? Um, so those are, those are just some of them, but it's been really fun for us to put these together because I think for a long time, it's, it's been really difficult for us to articulate what we're looking for. And the only reason we even know what we're looking for is because of the many thousands of people that went through that application process in the Teal Foundation. And then many more thousand that we have gone through with 1517 that has given us the insight into what these characteristics kind of look like. Um, and without that, without those training wheels, I, you know, I feel like I would be flying blind. I mean, I remember in the first year of the Teal Foundation, we were so nervous because it was like, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen for these people. We didn't know what was going to happen with Peter's reputation. We didn't know what was going to happen with these young people's reputation. And so something good would happen and we would be like, hooray, something good happened today for somebody. And then the next day, something bad would happen for somebody and be like, oh no, something bad happened today. So it was this extreme emotional roller coaster. And I think if I had to ride that roller coaster while making you know, investment decisions, it'd be very difficult. So we got five years of sort of riding a longer term emotional roller coaster, and we're able to see some of the outcomes so that we can get out of our own way, kind of that Zen arrow ourselves of being able to see like, okay, this is the target. 
you know, and we're going to do the best we can, but we're also going to sort of release that a lot of this is luck and chance and other things that are going on. Um, so, so yeah, that's a little bit about those areas. And then I know you wanted to talk more about 1517. Yeah, that was great. And, uh, much more than I expected you to share. So oh. appreciate it. And, uh, I'm looking forward to listening back. Cause I think uh, I expected that you would, uh, you know, the first one was hyperfluency. I thought that the list might contain like regular words, but it's, it sounds like you invented a bunch and sort of we defined invented, them. So we invented a to... lot of terms. The reason I think it's been important for us to invent these terms is that when you speak a language, everyone is supposedly on the same page about what you're talking about. So this is when I would get frustrated sometimes and be like, yeah, we're looking for people. You know, I'd say, you know, our, our investor would ask us like, what are the traits that you look for? And, and I was like, listen, I can write all these traits out on paper, but like, it's not going to make you better at identifying somebody. You're going to think, you know, something when you don't, it's about actually working with people and starting to see these traits for yourself. And so when we would say things like, you know, super curious people, everyone thinks that they've met someone who is super curious and they probably have at some point or another, but like, we have gotten to meet really, really, really super curious people. That's that like two standard deviations out thing. And people just package what they know in your language. So that's why we like came up with our own terms. So then people can't, they can't put their own view on what we do. Um, and at least we hope that it, it gives people the ability to listen a little, maybe more differently and nuanced to what we're saying than assuming that they know what these traits are. Yeah, I think uh, by making up the words, they basically have to understand the definition that you make that yeah. word represent. And with That's the right. definition, you get a lot more opportunity to sort of specify what you're talking about versus just a word, which can be really generally interpreted and misinterpreted in a lot of cases, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, last thing, I, I know we're actually uh, over on time, but uh, I, I know you've got a couple of minutes left, uh, fortunately, without the hard stop. So would love to talk about what you're doing today and uh, the 1517 fund, how it's sort of taken these learnings from the Teal Fellowship, which was not like a fund. It was just uh, sort of a, a nonprofit, I, I guess, that was giving money away, uh, yep. expecting no returns. And I've always been super curious as to how could you scale the Teal Fellowship to something that could um, make returns, not not because like, you know, returns are the end all be all, but um, it's hard to like have a nonprofit sustain for a very long right. period of time and you can just scale it a lot more in a for-profit way, I would imagine. So curious to hear how you guys are seeking out to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So we are super excited um, with our third fund, which we're going to be launching in the new year to really be, yeah, scaling 1517 out as this anti-establishment educational institution. And so this means, you know, writing more checks into companies. This means writing more grants to people. We're probably, we've been sort of tinkering on some new grant ideas um, and other types of funding as well. And so, yeah, it's, you know, the, I've been thinking about, or we're coming up on our investor meeting in December, and I've been thinking about kind of putting out a theme for the new year. And I think our theme is going to be foundation. And it's really about laying this foundation of what it means for 1517 to be becoming an institution. Um, and that's going to mean looking out for things that we're like positively inclined for and what are the pitfalls of institutions? Um, because, you know, there are systemic things um, that happen within that sort of context that I think we're going to have to be aware of. So I'm very curious to start digging into that and building that out more. Um, we've been very fortuitous. One of our founders, Austin Russell, had an IPO, um, and that was uh, in December of last year. <clears throat> and so he is one of the youngest self-made billionaires, and he's really helped to sort of push out our message of one path is not for all. And, you know, so the question that is always on our minds is, how do we find more Austins? Kind of like that turning over stones question. Um, and it's a very long game that we're playing because with an investment, you don't get to find out, you know, in year two, even like how things are going. You might have an inkling of how things are going, but we don't count our chickens before they hatch. And we've seen companies that looked really great on the surface later on crash and burn. And we've seen companies that didn't look so great on the surface, like really thrive. Um, so it's really, again, about what we talked about before, about identification of people, uh, as well as development within those groups. And we're super excited for um, 
for this coming year because we're going to start doing more content, more founder retreats, more events since the world is opening back up. So I, I think maybe the the word I'll I'll leave off with is more. Like we're just really excited to do more of what we do. More sounds good. Uh, more of what you've been doing would be great. It sounds like, and uh, appreciate you spending the time talking about some of the Teal Fellowship stuff. I know that's a little bit in the past, but these things take a lot of years to sort of develop, oh, yeah. and so we can do the uh, the reflection on fifteen seventeen maybe in the near future. But uh, definitely excited about everything that you're doing, and and really appreciate you coming on again, Danielle. Uh, where can people go to keep up with uh, everything you're working on and uh, you know, check out 1517 fund and, and all that. Absolutely. I would recommend checking out 1517fund.com. Uh, I can also be emailed at Danielle at 1517fund.com. Always feel free to reach out. And my Twitter is dstrackman. Um, so yeah, very happy to connect with people. 